Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwoman. Today's episode is a little bit different. I'm the one in the hot seat, but I did this interview with Daniel Roth, the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn, and I was really proud of how it came out and um, the conversation we had, so I thought I would share it with you here. Also, be sure to follow Daniel Roth on LinkedIn, follow the LinkedIn editors page, and also subscribe to This Is Working with Daniel Roth on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dan Roth, the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. Welcome to This Is Working, a show where we talk to people who have an outsized impact on our professional world. Our guest this week is Rebecca Minkoff. But first, a show note. We're taking a new approach to our second season. We now go live online, and you can join any of these live stream events by following the LinkedIn editors page on LinkedIn. There you can make comments and ask questions that I might feature during the podcast. A few days after each live show, you'll be able to listen again in this podcast form. I'll be talking to more leaders and executives driving the world in the weeks to come, so stay tuned. This week, though, we're airing the last episode of The Old This Is Working that our team created while we were still going to work at an office, if you can remember what that was like. All right, on to Rebecca Minkoff. I was really excited to talk to Rebecca because she never set out to be a business person. When she got her start 15 years ago, she was sewing t-shirts on her living room floor. Now, her clothes and her designs are found in closets of women everywhere, from professional women to celebrities. They all love her work. And Rebecca is constantly iterating. Her collection mirrors where she is in life. So her first big hit was the morning after bag, or the MAB. It was the exact bag she needed as a single woman in New York at the time. Then, as her business grew, she created a collection for professional women. Now she's raising three kids in New York, and she's got, of course, the little Minkoff brand, clothing for kids. We discussed everything from her design strategy to how she got smart and confident about the world of business. And we also talked about how she not only supports her own employees, but women entrepreneurs everywhere. To kick off our conversation, though, I really wanted to understand how she works that relationship between life and work. Here's Rebecca Minkoff. I think that when I started, I was 25, turning 26, and I was going through this period where, you know, sex in the city was the rage uh, on TV, and I wanted to have experiences like these young women were having. And as I started to realize, um, you know, as I'm getting older and I'm going through this, my consumer is actually coming with me because she found me at 26. And if I don't speak to her as I'm going along this journey, I'm going to lose her. And we as a business, we love A-B testing. And we tried just sticking with an age. And then I couldn't really talk to her authentically because I was like, I don't know what that life is like anymore. I'm not getting any sleep and I'm a mother of three kids. So I think the moment we said, let's always be on that journey and obviously still talk to women of all ages. But as I'm going through these really huge major milestone moments, that's when it's really key to just be thinking about another woman who's going through that with me. And that's what's really been working. So are you creating for you then? Are you thinking about yourself as being the consumer of your own items? I think it's twofold. I think because I've always had a really strong direct connection with my consumer, we were one of the first when it was crazy to talk to her. Mm -hmm. Um, I know what she's going and looking for. And I always go, you know, what do I want kids wear to be like? Or what do I want fragrance to look like? And so I want to ideate it because if it's missing something for me, then I want to be able to fill that void. 
in the fall, you presented a, your, your spring and summer line, and you decided not to do a, any kind of runway. You instead presented these vignettes of women at work, including a woman who was breastfeeding while wearing your clothes. Yes. Would you walk us through what you were thinking there, what you were trying to achieve? Yes. So we had been doing runway shows, and I thought with the theme of the collection, which was about celebrating women who work, um, you know, seeing a model walk up and down a runway wouldn't give you that connection, that visceral, oh my gosh, this is an environment and this is who this woman is and celebrating her. And so we transitioned to a presentation model and had these little vignettes of, you know, the cafeteria, the file room. And as we were building these sets, I was pumping. I'm still a nursing mom. And I was like, guys, we need a pumping room. And in that pumping room, there has to be a breastfeeding mom because I'm so tired that it's still not the normal in the workplace. There's still a sad little room that you have to hide in. And I, in order to live my life, I have to just be out and fully there with it wherever I am. And so for me, that was really key to message and then do it again, because I think women in the workplace are still struggling with that. And I just want to make it normal. Are you trying to push boundaries here? Is it? Are you doing this because you're like saying, oh, this is what I'm dealing with? Yeah. Or are you trying to get society to notice something or to change? What's the end goal? I think the end goal is that you can be in a board meeting and you can do what you got to do and no one blinks. Because on our journey as women and with the bodies we have, and if we want to have that experience as mothers, it's really challenging at work. And the conversations that have to be had of, oh, can you move that meeting around because I have to go pump? Or, you know, oh, I couldn't do it because I kept missing stuff and I was falling behind at work. I think that those are excuses if we want to be seen as equals and we want to, you know, end these conversations that it just has to be like, I'm doing my thing and we're going to keep going. Your company is mostly women, is that right? And I saw somewhere that you said that it's about 50% women of color. Can you both talk about how you are hiring and also how you manage in an environment like that, especially with the changes you're trying to make uh, in society at large, what you do inside your company? So I'm probably the person that's the opposite. So when someone is pregnant or they are having come back, I'm like, what do you need? How you doing? Are you breastfeeding? And they're like, please get away from me, you crazy lady. (laughs) Let me do my own thing. Um, But I want to make them feel comfortable. And I want, you know, my co-founder, my brother, and I really want to create an environment where if you have a life outside of work that you want to, say, children, for instance, or dogs or pets, we really want you to experience that. Uh, in a way, and not feel like you have to sacrifice. So, you know, we make it clear that if you have outside activities that are important for you to be at, please go. But we just want you to feel like this is a really easy sort of in and out transition, that it's not a shock to the system when you come back. And we want to know what your boundaries are and really respect them. How have you thought about what your company, what are the policies in place, how you make sure your employees feel this way? How have you figured that out? I think for us, it's been trial and error. And it's been looking at Uh, what do other companies do well? What can we afford to do? You know, one time I sat down with a group of moms and I said, what can we do for you? And when they listed everything, I was like, I love all your suggestions, but we wouldn't be in business if I did all those things. So I think it's that fine line of you need to have your employees show up for work, one, right? Um, Wherever they are, if they're working remotely or not. And um, from there, what, what can we give and what can we afford to do to really make the most impact? So for us, we knew it's extended time on the weekends or comp days. And so those are things we do, you know, starting later on Mondays, ending early on Fridays. That's for all of your employees? Yes. 
And then, you know, the summer you have five summer Fridays. And this might not seem like much to the companies that have unlimited vacation policies and other things, but for us with our industry, um, there's, it just, that doesn't work for us. But where we can give you extra time, that's our aim too. I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the areas where you're pressing the industry. Yes. With your little mink offline, your first kids line, um, you are going for a zero waste model. Yes. So nothing, is this right that nothing is created until it's ordered? Correct. Would you explain how you came up with this idea yeah. and what the process has been like? Yeah, so we were lucky enough to come across a company called Resonance, mm -hmm. and they have a proprietary blockchain model where everything in their uh, facility is in white fabric. So when you start out you know, with this fabric, for instance, it's in this print and color, and if I don't use all of this fabric at the end of the season, it goes to Mood Fabrics and it's used on uh, Project Runway, right? Or it goes into a landfill. So because everything is white, the minute you actually decide to order, that garment is printed, and that optimizes the fabric scraps because when you have a print, you have to usually cut around it. Um, and this basically allows less fabric to be used in the process. And then they're using eco-friendly, earth-friendly chemicals to actually make the goods. So that eliminates a lot of the waste in water and in chemicals. And then they sew the garment and they send it off to you. So you have to wait six to nine days, but you get something with far less waste, no inventory. So your goal is to have what percent of your line done as this kind of made to order? I mean, if I could make it 100%, I would. I think uh, as a recycling fanatic, you know, um, I'm trying to get as much waste out of my current infrastructure as fast as possible. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy how much the fashion industry is contributing to waste. So the UN had a report, something like fashion was the second biggest industry to produce wastewater. 80% of all textiles end up in landfill. Yep. Are you surprised that the industry is not moving faster in this I'm area? I'm shocked. Hmm. Because as I'm going on the journey with my current businesses to try and get biodegradable bags or compostable plastic you know, goods or uh, recycled paper hang tags, the cost and the lack of industry around it, it's ripe for disruption. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and when you're working with a factory, they're doing business with 10 other people who don't want to change, so they don't want to stop and change for you. So it's not as easy as it sounds to just eliminate it all, but we're working pretty aggressively to, to do our best. And aren't consumers demanding this, or is, it, is this more talk than actual action? Do you hear from your consumers saying, hey, Rebecca, you have to make this stuff zero waste, or are you kind of ahead of where your, your, your consumers are? I think we're a little ahead, but I definitely have a consumer that's, you know, vegan, and she wants mm -hmm. vegan materials, and I hear that all day long. So, you know, we have a number of items uh, that are vegan now, and we're promoting that to her, but that's been the number one ask is, where is my vegan leather bag? Um, is there anything that you have learned so far? I know you're very early into this, but anything you've learned so far that you said, I wish I had gone after this zero waste um, uh, effort a little bit differently or things that you're discovering along the way? I think that um, to build it into your cost model, right? Mm. To go back and try and explain to the customer why it costs $2 more or $5 more, or even to the, you know, some of our wholesale department stores will actually charge us a fee if we send them something with a cardboard hanger versus plastic hangers. Hmm. So now I have to actually go educate them and say, no, take the cardboard hanger that's recyclable instead of the plastic one that you throw away. Um, and so you're just trying to keep breaking the system. So I think if you could start off right and holistic, then you're not engaging in these fights and these conversations, you know, as a big company. Got it. Uh, okay, another retail question for you. You are, there are other big changes going on in retail. 
so much of retail is imploding right now. Yes. How does it, what kind of an impact does that have on your business? I think for us, the connection we need to have with our consumer, and that we've had, but that is of utmost importance. The only thing that I can offer you, because you can get my product or, you know, a far less quality product for less money somewhere else, is the connection that I have with you and the the idea that I provide you with something more valuable beyond a product. Mm -hmm. So as long as that's my North Star and I'm making sure that I'm there for you, whether it's style advice or business advice or founder advice, um, I think it creates a thank you for being there. You're not just trying to sell me something. And I think the brands that are going to stand the test of time are going to be those ones that are, you know, caring about their customer, not just talking at you or selling at you, but providing you with a value beyond a product. Well, it's so different than in, I know that you've talked about how at the start of the financial crisis, at least one store came to you and said, you're doing great. You now have to take your products <laughs> down by $200. Yep. Um, it's the, the world's kind of flipped. You are now the one who are, who are telling retailers how to survive yes. versus them telling you what you need to do to be able to survive. What else can you, uh, I assume that part of reason why you're doing this podcast, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the podcast, is so that you can have this connection with your buyers, with your consumers outside of the stores. Is that right? Is that what started got you started in this? Yeah. So I had uh, done these talks in our stores where I said, I want to have you come into my store, be in my world and environment, but I'm not selling you something. Mm -hmm. I want you to walk away with an incredible woman's story and her advice. And we were doing them once a month, and that was great, but I was only reaching a New York, you know, 92 people, fire code. And it's not an experience that I feel like is good enough to put on Facebook Live or Instagram Live. I mean, mm. no one's tuning in for that type of content at a store level. So I thought, how do I take this bigger? How do I amplify it and get this out to the tens of thousands of my customers and women who just need that, like, boost? So decided um, in the summer of 18 to launch the podcast and didn't know what I was doing. And I had a woman at, the, at my company who said, we're not helping you. You need to figure this out. And I was like, what? Um, and that was great advice. <laughs> and I had to figure it out on my own and launch it on my own. And that gives you a sense of, um, you know, after 15 years of figuring out one thing to switch into an entirely different media format was like, exciting to figure out. And it's been soul food for me to tell these women's stories and to be inspired and to know that as a founder, when you're having the roughest day you can imagine, that there's another woman who's had just as rough of a day. And here's what she did to get out of it. I just want to go back to one small point. You brought this to someone at your company and they said, Rebecca, we are not <laughs> going to support you on this. Yes. Does that happen a lot? Um, you know, for a good few years, it did happen. Yeah. And, and it's kind of it takes me back to my days with my mom, who was tough love of like, if you want this, great, figure it out. Or if you want to buy this, you need to work to make your own money. And so when she said that to me, it didn't shock me. I was just like, but we have all these, we have people here who can help me. And she was like, no, everyone's at maximum bandwidth. Go figure it out. That's so funny. How, so how do you think about the ROI of doing stuff like this? Or do you not think that way? Do you, are you, I assume that as a founder, as someone who is running constantly, you must have to think about how you're spending every minute. Yes. What makes this podcast worth your time? Okay. I think I didn't start it looking at it from an ROI. I think in the same way that in the early days of Instagram, you said, this is another way to reach my customer mm -hmm. and to impact her. That was my approach with the podcast. And then you get the reviews and you get the emails and you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm helping change people's lives because they're listening to these women's stories and taking great advice or it 
brings them back from the brink or, you know, however it affects them. And then that's an ROI in itself. I'm not looking at it from a point of view of I have, you know, 30,000 downloads a week and 30,000 purchases. You know, right. I'm What's not. What's the funnel? Exactly. Yeah. I'm saying I'm going to pump out this contact. I'm going to give you the soul food and I hope that it works. And I know that I'm reaching the same age and demo as my consumer because I can see those metrics. Um, and so maybe when she wants to support a female founder, she'll be like, I want Rebecca Minkoff. Mm-hmm. But that's not the driving force. And I think if it were, it would feel a lot more salesy. Let's talk a little bit about female founders. You've yeah. got the Female Founders Collective. Yeah. Uh, fascinating idea. So your idea is basically if you were going to help women reach economic empowerment, the place to invest is not the Fortune 500 and trying to get more women into the C-suite, but to invest in the 12 million small businesses or businesses that women have started. Yes. Um, how far along is this collective and what are you trying to, how will you know whether it's successful or not? So we're a year and a half in. Mm-hmm. Um, we have over 7,000 members, and the seal's on over 3 million products, which I'm really excited about because as a consumer, I turn over my products all day long, and that informs my purchasing decision. You know, is it non-GMO? Is it organic? Um, so now you can turn over things like Birchbox or Lola or cosmetics companies and turn over, oh, woman, I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we just announced a project with UBS that gets, uh, it's called Project Entrepreneur, and it gets women founders ready to actually take in capital and then know how to deploy it. Mm. And I think being that the numbers are alarmingly small of women getting funding, less than 3%, you know, if you can educate the over 200 women we're going to in this cohort, that's 200 more women who are primed for investment. And then they know how to use those funds when they get it. So I think I'll know it's working when I see that uh, 80 cents become 82, 83, 84. But also, as we can track these businesses as we get more sophisticated, I'll be able to say to you, you know, these 7,000 companies or 10,000 companies have all grown by X because of, you know, whatever it is we did to help them. And you came into this from the fashion side. Yes. And what has been your personal story about how you learned how to navigate the business world? So I would say that. I'm over-indexing in this because I didn't have that education and I didn't have that know-how. So I relied for the first seven years on my brother Mm -hmm. to make all the business decisions. I was like, you're the CEO. You seem to know this. I'll focus on design. And at one point he looked at me, and I always hate admitting when he's right, but he was like, you need to evolve. You can't just be the designer in your ivory tower. You have to learn this. This is a language and, and a way of being. And so I was like resentfully started diving in and, you know, getting myself educated. And your decisions are just vastly different when you're educated. And your knowledge and what you can affect is different. So if I can give a woman what I didn't have or didn't take advantage of so she can excel in her business, you know, far earlier, then that's my goal. Because I can tell you when I started my business, I had one bank account. He said, you know, do you have a business bank account? And I was like, I don't even have enough money in this one. Why would I make it two? You mm-hmm. know, or what's an LLC? What's a tax ID? What, what should I be an Inc or an LLC? These are all questions that women who have passions when they start their businesses, they don't know the answers to. So if I can help affect just a couple of those micro decisions to get someone on their way, it's a lot less painful in the end. Did you ever have imposter syndrome? Was there ever a point where you were like, I don't know whether you were moved out, your brother helped push you out of the ivory tower. Yes. You were now forced to start picking up things where you might not have been, where you, you might not have had the comfort level to ask the right questions yep. or to even know whether these were the right questions. How did you fight through that? 
It was a lot of pretending. I mean, mm. in our board meetings, um, I would be looking up words under the table. What is EBITDA, right? right? Like, and and I think I was like, well, they know that I don't know, so they'll just ask the questions to my brother. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't like feeling that way. I didn't like knowing what they were talking about or the intricate details of a complicated, you know, global brand. And so five years ago, I was like, I got to learn this stuff. It's my responsibility to be as smart as I can, and. Admit when you're wrong. I think raising your hand and be like, wait, what does this mean? It's okay. And so I started doing that all the time. Hmm. I was like, wait, stop, explain this to me. And now, now I feel like I have a handle on the language and understanding and I'm not perfect, I'm still learning, but I'm the first person to be like, huh? Can you explain this in like layman's terms to me? And do you do anything with your employees to make sure they feel that same comfort level? I tell them all the time, if you don't understand what we're talking about, raise your hand. If you have an idea, raise your hand. We really want to foster an environment of entrepreneurialism within our staff. So if you have a job, like you're trusted to do it and expand and grow it as if it was your company. Uh, would you talk a little bit about career advice? I'm sure you have yeah. people coming to you all the time saying, how do I? I want to start exactly what you started. I want to be where you're sitting one day. Yeah. What do you tell people? I tell people a couple things. I think in our age of clicking, you know, you can your Uber's downstairs, your Amazon packages arrive. I meet a lot of young people who expect that their career, what I've spent 15 years building, is going to happen with a click of a button. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell them, put your head down, work hard. This is your career. It's the only thing I can think of today uh, where there are no shortcuts. You know, there's definitely going to be people that are going to get you further along, but this is a five-year, ten-year passion. And it might not end with unicorn status, but you'll have a great business and you'll have a prosperous company and you'll have employed hundreds of people. So that's something to be proud of too. So you can't click your way to success. And to really rely on your network. Yeah. I'm only here because of the network of women and men that have helped me and who've seen that I was hungry and ready to work hard and said, okay, you know, here's this contact or here's this opportunity and then doing something with it. Do you think that when you're telling young people this, they are embracing that message or do they want the click? I think they are like, oh man, I want the click, but I probably, it's probably more true that I have to actually work hard. And, and how do you build that network? I mean, it sounds easy, but it, or it sounds like, you know, it's just one thing, go and build a network. Yes. What does that even mean? So I tell this story and a colleague in my office laughs at me all the time, but when I used to go out, to me, I'd get home and count the business cards I got each night like it was money. I was like, I met this person and this person, this person. And I view that today, obviously, I'm not counting business cards, but I think it's like, who did I meet? What's the opportunity? How do I engage in an authentic connection so it's not just social climbing? Um, what can I give to them? You know, how is this a two-way street? And viewing that um, as an opportunity, and uh, I have a friend, she makes lead sheets, you know? She actually writes down all her leads and what, you know, what the potentials are and really ticks it off a list mm. of like constantly sort of making sure you're in touch with these people or giving them something before you ever need anything. And I think that's great advice that I just received. Yeah, Diane von Furstenberg, I know, has said that every morning she wakes up and sends one email to just help someone, to bring two people together that might not have met, but that doesn't help her at all. Yep. It's just the way that she wants to start every day. It sounds like you've got something similar going on. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I get asked all the time, do you know, uh, can I have on? I'm like, yes, great. We can all win. This doesn't have to be, um, there's enough pie for everybody. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of the pie, what is your, what's the long-term <laughs> goal here? What is, how big of the pie do you want to get? Is this kind of thing where you look around offices and you're like, every single woman should be wearing, you know, me, every college graduate needs to get dressed in my clothing. What, what, how do you think about the future of your brand? I think of it as um, all aspects of a woman's lifestyle. I know from talking to my consumer, we're really a milestone moments brand. So we're there for the girl that just got a raise. She goes out and buys my bag. She's going to quit her job. She walks in on her Rebecca Minkoff. You know, she's going on her first, I don't know, date. She puts on her leather jacket. So these are all these visceral moments that every single time I meet my customer, I get a story. Mm. Of, I remember the first time I had my bag, X happened. And so wherever I can touch you for that, whether it's your first home or your, you know, your skin or your makeup, like categories, again, we haven't launched. Um, I want to be there and I want you to be able to eat and have a great outfit or um, be able to go out at night and then pay your rent. So that's my goal is to keep it affordable and really high quality. And to have these stories tied with it. Well, your story has been great. Thank you so much for, for sharing it with me. us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. That was Rebecca Minkoff. What's something you realized you needed to learn once you'd already launched your career? How has someone helped you grow when it seemed like nothing was in it for them? Let us know over on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. And please follow me on LinkedIn. And if you want more news and insights, follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn Editors. If you found this podcast helpful, take a moment to subscribe to This Is Working and please rate us and leave a comment. It really helps new listeners find the show. This Is Working is a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with support from Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Ferencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. We'll be back next week with another live episode. Thanks for listening.